Good morning, beloved. It is so good to gather together. Uh, summer starts. Uh, school is out. That's a wild feeling. So uh, first movie of the summer for my kids, we watched Homeward Bound. Do you remember the 90s classic, Homeward Bound? Yeah. The, so you got three animals and then three children who correspond as their owners, but the dog and cat, dogs and cat think that they're the owners. Um, but they, they're separated. There's kind of the tragedy of a move and everything. And so um, the, the story is just kind of this epic, like the, the animals can talk, of course, you know. So they're talking to each other, and it's just this ad- grand adventure to get back, to get back to their owners um, or those that they own. Um, but the, the whole tension of the movie is about this return. There's a desire and there's a return. And so the quest is all about returning to what you desire. Um, and I actually read a story of a dog, an Australian dog, a cattle dog named Sophie, um, who fell off of the family yacht off the coast of Queensland some time back. Um, Sophie fell off of the yacht. They could not find Sophie. Um, but Sophie swam almost six miles through shark-infested waters, if you know what it's like off the coast of Australia, um, made it to an island where there were some wild goats and lived for four months off of wild goats. Yeah, um, so you know how bougie a dog is if it falls off the family yacht. Um, swim six miles through shark water and then eat some goats for four months. Um, but some rangers come up on this dog and they capture the dog like it's killing all the native goats. And so they've caged this dog and, and word spreads and the family actually finds out about this dog and they're like, could it be? And so they go to the island. They meet the rangers who have Sophie in a cage. And this is after four months. And Sophie hears them call Sophie's name and starts flipping out, trying to get out, gets out and nearly knocks them over, like reunited. And this beautiful story of being returned. And that's just very different, honestly, than my childhood experience with pets, you know? Um, maybe it's because we grew up where like the greatest enemy of any dog I ever owned was vehicles. Um, people drove very fast on the road that I was on most of my childhood. Um, I also rode bikes on that road, so I don't know what that says. But you couldn't let the dog on the road. Um, but if the dog got on the road, very good chance it's not going to go well. Um, but it was just kind of like this, this turmoil, like the tension, the juggling act of owning a pet for me as a child was the dog always wants to escape. You got to keep him from escaping, and you got to force him to love you. Because for whatever reason, they don't want to be around you. I don't know if your childhood pets were like that. Um, but... The reality behind all of that is we return to what we love. And we desire to return to what we love. And that can be really good news or it could be really bad news considering what you keep returning to. But we return to what we love. And so I want to tell you, central to today's passage as we're going to continue through Malachi um, and, and all of what I hope to share with you, I so want you to consider the words of God when he says, return to me. If you can hear the voice of God say to you, return to me, and then what will you do with that? So if you have your copy of scripture, turn with me to Malachi chapter three. We are concluding our quick jog through the book of Malachi today, and we'll be launching our summer series with the kids, um, elementary kids in here with us next week. Um, So we'll be jumping through a bunch of narratives in the Old Testament, but this week as we conclude Malachi, um, we're gonna pick up in chapter three, verse six. So if you'll turn there with me. Chapter 3, verse 6. Because I, the Lord, have not changed, you descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. Since the days of your fathers, you have turned from my statutes, you have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Return to me. 
This is, this is amazing. <clears throat> he is drawing a contrast here. Malachi has, as God is revealing his word through him, God is saying through Malachi, return to me, but he's drawing this beautiful contrast where he starts off and says, I don't change. Because I have not changed, you're not consumed or destroyed. Like if you love systematic theology, which I hope is every one of you, like memorize that verse. Think about how much rides on that reality that God does not change. That because I have not changed, you have not been destroyed. I don't change. He's drawing a contrast. God does not change, but Israel changes repeatedly. We change repeatedly. Like God stays true to what he says is true about himself, his covenant, he holds his end, and yet we walk away continually from him. And so Israel in this Mosaic covenant, God says, you you, Jacob, you have not been destroyed. And so remember all these covenants he's made with the people of God and they kind of culminate in this huge law that's given in the Mosaic covenant. And there are terms to that, that if you will obey the law, you know, I'll be your God, I'll be with you, I'll bless you. But if you will not obey, if you will not keep up your end of the covenant, then curses will come. And he's, God is saying, you know, I've always been faithful on my end. And he says, I, the Lord, and so we started with this in the first um, week of this sermon series, Lord, all caps, Lord, is Yahweh as we think it's pronounced, but we don't know for sure. But this is the divine name of the one true God above all gods. And so Yahweh here says, I, the Lord, and you remember everything that's tied to that when I revealed that to you. And so you go back into the Exodus and you, and you hear and you, you imagine this scene where there's thunder and lightning. The glory of God has manifested itself in this weird, spectacular, majestic image as the top of a mountain is like smoldering. And Moses goes up, everyone else is like, we're out. You go for it, buddy. And he goes up in the mountain and he comes back because God's like, you know, the stiff-necked people down there, they've already made a golden calf. They're already worshiping something else. Moses comes down. It's not a good story. Breaks the tablets. I'm angry too. He comes back up to mediate on behalf of the people of God. Like, please forgive us. But he comes back. And this is Moses who has already seen so much. He saw the burning bush that's not consumed. He saw the mountain. He comes up and he's talking to God. He receives these tablets. And he's like, there's more to you. I know there's more. Can I see you? Like, what are you talking about, Moses? <laughs> Can I see you? And God's like, here's the thing. You can't see me and live, but I'm gonna hide you in the cleft of this rock. I'm gonna put my hand over you and I'm gonna pass by and you can look at my backside. And this is what God says as he parades in front of Moses to where Moses gets to see yet another glimpse of God and his grandeur. It says in Exodus 34, six to seven, and now all this tied to the name of the Lord, God announces, the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, meaning Hear my name, here's who I am, is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. And so when he says, because I, the Lord, have not changed, you descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed, it should conjure up in our minds everything about who we know the Lord to be. That he is gracious, he's compassionate, he's slow to anger, forgiving the sins of us for a thousand generations, and yet he is just. There are real consequences for rebellion. And so, because he is true, 
we have not been consumed. Because he does not change. Because he is still who he said he is. We have not been destroyed. But you, Israel, you're constantly changing. You're constantly running away. You've turned from my statutes. You have not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord of armies. So look at their response. Still following the same paradigm of the arguments throughout this book. Now there's the kind of anticipated response. Part C of verse seven, it says, yet you ask, how can we return? There you go, making these accusations again, God. Telling us to return, how can we return? Because you know, history lesson, we're back here in Israel because we were kicked out in exile. Like, yep, thanks, we know we deserve that, but like, that really sucked. Now we're back in here. We have returned. We've returned, and things are awful. Thank you. The temple is in disrepair. The gates are collapsing again. Like, everything is bad. There's so much injustice. This is just terrible. And so you're telling us to return? We did return. How can we return? In fact, where are you, God? Have you been there? You know, in life, I'm trying to do what I know I'm supposed to be doing. Like, God, you called me to this. And I'm here trying my very best. Like, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm trying my very best to do what is right. And yet life still hurts. Like things still go poorly. Where's the blessing that's promised? So where are you? I came back, where are you, God? This is their response. And so God now finishes the argument. Verse eight, will a man rob God? Yet you were robbing me. How do we rob you, you ask? By not making the payment of the tenth and the contributions. You're suffering under a curse yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. And that's some really strong language. Rob. You are robbing God. I feel, oh no, it's another giving sermon. (laughs) Why aren't you tithing? Where's the tithe? You're robbing me, God says. Okay, take a deep breath. It's okay. It's not actually about that. It is, but it's so much more. But God says, you are robbing me. You are robbing me, the tithe, the offerings, these things that you have been commanded to bring in for the flourishing of ministry, for the glory of God, to keep the temple in pristine condition, to take care of the ministers, to take care of the hurting, the sick, the broken, all the people, all the things that you're supposed to be providing so that we can take care of those things to the glory of God, and yet you're not. You're robbing me. You see that Levite, and he looks like he's fat and happy, and you think, he doesn't need this, I need this more. I'll keep this for myself. The recession's coming, come on. Like, we, we can't be given to that charity. And God says, no, you're robbing me. And you think you're not giving to a building, or you're giving to the priest, you're giving to the candles, you're giving to all these different things. No, you're actually robbing me. Like, that is harsh. This is strong language. And God is calling it back to this Mosaic covenant, this idea of the tithe that comes in, these offerings that are instituted. And by the way, let's go ahead and dispel the idea that like, oh, in the Old Testament, like in the law, we just have to give 10%. It's actually way more than that. 10% was your starting point. The tithe was the starting point. And then you had all these other types of offerings at different points of the year. And if you did certain things, then you come and offer this kind of sacrifice and things. And so it's actually way more than 10%. And God's saying, you're robbing me of that. You're not following the law. And in fact, he says, hey, by not making the payments of the tenth and contribution, you're suffering under a curse. Yet, you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. 
Like, you can feel the curse now, can't you, Israel? Don't you realize what's happening? Like, you came back from exile, from the curse, and now you're back in curse because you're not obeying the law. You've broken the covenant. And now look what he says in verse 10. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not ruin the produce of your land and your vine and your field will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of armies. Oh, that's hope. Like what a promise of God. You've screwed it up. You're robbing me. But this is what I'm gonna do. Test me on this. Fill my storehouse and see if yours don't overflow. See if I don't just shower down blessings on you. See if I don't deliver you from pestilence. See if I don't keep the pest literally away. Watch how I will shower you with grace and favor if you will bring this in. Test God. See that he provides and holds to his covenant's terms. And many of you are probably feeling really like tense and I hope you are. I think that's probably a healthy thing because you're like, oh, this could go really, really poorly right now. Like, is this a promise that we hear on TV? It's like, hey, we're gonna, we've never done this before, but let's pass a plate. And if you will give this amount, then we can promise that God will give you this. You'll be blessed beyond measure. See, it's right there in the word. And no, that's not what it is. That's called the prosperity gospel. This idea that somehow I can put God in debt to me. That if I do something or I give something to God, he now owes me something. And there's a tension to walk in that. Because God actually does say, like, test me. Test me on this. He does tell us to do things like hold me accountable, like recall my promises. That's what many of the prophets were doing. This is what Moses did continually. He's like, hey, remember your name, your fame? Like, for the sake of your name, can you not destroy us? Like, remember what you promised Like, that's actually a good thing for us to do. And it's not calling into question God's character or anything. It's God inviting us into a deeper relationship and understanding with him. And so this is not prosperity gospel, that if you will give God this, then there's a promise, there's an assurance. You're gonna materially just be so well off. That's not what's happening here. But we also can't take it to the other extreme. You can't take it to develop this poverty theology that I have been very guilty of in my life. It's where so often I'll swing so far to the other side on the pendulum that like, I don't want to be associated with prosperity gospel that I'm terrified to talk about money. And uh, Jesus was homeless. Like, birds have nests, foxes have dens, but son of man has nowhere to lay his head. You want to follow me? This is what it's going to look like. It's going to cost you. You Count the cost. You're not going to build a tower. You're not going to go to war without first counting the cost. Count the cost. It's heavy. There's a lot. And so I can tend to come way over here and think like money's just evil. Like if I want to follow Jesus, I should just basically be poor. And that's not at all the way of Jesus either. Like money is not inherently evil. Uh, Pastor Alex did a beautiful job on this a few weeks ago talking about money and finances. Like you don't have to be scared of money. You can own things, just don't let things own you. The paradigm of the New Testament is so different. It is not prosperity gospel. It is not poverty theology. But there is a real call here where God is saying, test me on this. And it's not like a principle or a promise that you can just like kind of formulaically say like every time it's gonna go like this. Um, But I wanna share from personal experience a little bit of my story. My wife, I'm a a church planter. I'm a pastor of this church. 
look around right now? Yeah, I love this. Do you think I'm getting rich? No, I'm not. But I love this. Do you think my family has missed a single meal? They have not. We're actually debt-free entirely. Like we don't owe anything to anyone. And a lot of that is because we try to follow the way of Jesus. But you know what? We're also going to go on vacation this summer. And when we want to go out, my anniversary is coming up, a week or two. I, I should know that. She's in the classroom. <laughs> I'm going to take my wife out, and we're going to have a nice meal and some nice drinks. And that's okay. Don't be afraid of money. But don't let it rule you. And so it's not poverty theology, it's not prosperity gospel, but really, you can trust God. And that may look really hard at times. There have certainly been seasons where we're like, let's buckle the belt a little, let's go to another notch. But that's okay. And you don't have to question God. So here, here we go. I want, I want you to see this in a, in a new way, perhaps, than you've ever seen it before as we walk through this passage and what it is because this passage has been so abused. So um, consider this at three levels. So type A personalized, this is how we're going to look at this. We're going to zoom to the high level and look at like what is the flow of the argument here. We're going to zoom in on some burning questions that I think you probably have in your mind. Um, and then we're going to come back and see the argument as a whole as a challenge to us. Okay? So zooming out, high level, follow the flow of the argument here. 3.6, he says, hey, I don't change. And then he calls them descendants of Jacob, which should recall in us, you go back to the beginning of the book, and I said, I think this is the key for the whole thing. When God's first thing he starts with is, I have loved you. And yet you say, how have you loved us? But if it all comes back to God, this God of covenantal love, saying, I love you. And he says, I don't change. And do you remember how I love you, Jacob? that it's grace. Jacob was an awful dude, like me and like you. And he only came into this by God's grace. He only became God's own, his beloved, because of God's grace. And so remember that. Remember you're here by grace. So I don't change. Remember that. Remember that I love you. And then 3.7, he says, here's the call to action. Return to me. Return to me. So because I love you, can you remember that? Now return to me. You will return to what you desire and what you love. Return to me. And then 3.10, he says, now test me on this. And that's a beautiful invitation. The invitation is actually real. Will you test God on this? Taste and see that the Lord is good. And it does not mean he's going to give you a really big bank account. But in every way that truly matters, he's saying, test me. See, taste and see he is good. And so that's high level. Now, some burning questions that I know um, some of you are asking. This whole tithe thing, like, do we still tithe? Should I feel bad about the percentage that I'm giving? Do I need to keep, like, a, a spreadsheet to know what percentage I've given this year? Like, and does that count, like, if it's to the church, but I also give to Compassion, or I give to the local New Beginnings, or, like, all these other things, like, I help this guy out of the grocery store, like, can I count that in my 10%? Like, all this stuff, all these kinds of questions. Um, first, we have to ask, that's part of the law. Do we still follow the law? So we'll start with, do we follow the law? And then we can ask, do we still tithe? And so do we still follow the law? Um, Galatians 5.3, this is what Paul says, and we went through this last fall. He says, again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised, which was a requirement of the law, that he is obligated to do the entire law. So here's the thing. 
If you want to tithe because you want to follow the law, if that is your merit for salvation, that is what you think you must do, then the argument is you actually have to fulfill the entire law. So you don't get to pick and choose here. If you're gonna say that you have to tithe because the law says you must tithe, you also must not eat shellfish. And I'm so sorry if you're friends with me, but I'm gonna cook some lobster tomorrow. (laughs) That's happening. So you can't pick and choose. If you're going to follow the law, then you're obligated to do the entire law. But does that mean that we just kind of like throw the law out altogether? No, by no means. That's in fancy terms called antinomianism. We don't do that. We, we don't throw out the law because um, the law is still here in some way. And yet there's this tension, and that's what brings all these questions. The, the preacher in the book of Hebrews, he says it like this in chapter eight. He says, but Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, the old covenant being the law, which has been established on better promises. And then jump down to verse 13, he says, by saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is obsolete, and what is obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. So the law is no longer binding on the Christian. In fact, it's, it's old, it's passing away. And yet, Jesus says things like, none of my words gonna pass away. And I, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so he's saying, no, you don't get rid of the law, but you have to see how you relate to it. That the law serves a purpose. There's a purpose for the law. And so Christian, you're no longer trying to do the law, obey the law in order to keep this right standing, the blessing, the terms of the covenant. There's a new covenant that you're under and this one is entirely secured by God himself. This is what Jeremiah and Ezekiel call the new covenant where he's gonna write his name on our hearts. He'll give us a new heart, take away the heart of stone, give us a heart of flesh that can feel. And so in faith, the spirit gives us faith, quickens us to life and we open our eyes and see the beauty of who Jesus is and now we say, yes, Lord, you're glorious. I trust you, I love you, I'll follow you. And so in this new covenant, Jesus says, I hold them in my hand and no one can take them out. That he has you. He has secured your place, a right standing with God because he paid the penalty, the ultimate sacrifice, all of what the law was pointing to. Jesus kept it perfectly and then died this atoning death to cover our sins. That is the beauty of the gospel. And so do we follow the law? Well, not for salvation. Not for right standing with God but it does express the moral character of God. And he calls us to be holy. And so, like the psalmist would say, it's a lamp. It's a delight. It lights the way and it brings me joy to follow your precepts, God. And so we want to do these things, but we have to relate to them rightly because some of them were were meant for ceremonial things. And some of them were meant for the the national things to like make them distinct, like the whole tattooing idea. Like if you have a tattoo, that does not mean that you have inherently broken the law and like God's angry with you about it. Um, It's really your heart. You need to decide if you could do that in faith. But the tattoo prohibition was because a lot of the pagan worship in the surrounding cultures was through tattooing. And so like, you're not gonna do that because I am your God. And so you can take the law and make it legalistic or you can see the purpose of the law and how Christ fulfilled it. But he did not abolish it. And so we need to relate rightly to it. So in the new covenant now, if that's kind of where we are with the law, we're gonna come back to that in a moment. I know it can be a little confusing. You're gonna track with me today. Now we have to ask, in this new covenant, giving, tithing? So is that a thing? Because some of the law expresses the moral absolutes of God. And we're supposed to obey the law of Christ, which ultimately comes down to loving. And so any of the law that is moral, 
then we should say, yeah, like, you absolutely should obey that you should not kill other people. That's, that's a really good idea. You, you should not steal. Yeah, it's a great idea. Like, all these things, when it comes down to, what does it look like to love your neighbor and to love God? And this is why Jesus said it's the first and greatest. Because if you do that, then you're actually going to naturally fulfill the rest. And so when it comes to giving, like, is that loving? I mean, I guess we can make an argument for that. But what does the new covenant, the new testament actually say about giving? So 1 Corinthians 16, one to two. Paul's writing this. He says, now about the collection for the saints, do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. On the first day of the week, meaning Sunday, each of you is to set aside something and save in keeping with how he is prospering. So the no collections will, be, will need to be made when I come. Paul's saying, there's real need. The church in Jerusalem is really suffering right now. I'm on a fundraising trip because I've got to collect some money to bring back to them. So here's what you're going to do. When you gather for worship, you should just make it a habit to give, collectively give. And you give according to how you're prospering. So if you made a lot of money this week, give a lot of money. If you didn't make much money this week, don't go in debt. You still need to feed your family. So give according to how you're prospering. And then when I come, I'll collect that and we'll put it to use for ministry, for the advancement of the kingdom, the provision of the saints. And so that's the paradigm he gives us. And then 2 Corinthians 9, he's writing to the same church and he says this because there seems to be some tension. He's like, he's actually trying to like almost shame them into like, you guys see how the, the others are giving? Like, <laughs> step it up, guys. This is a wealthy city. But he says this, he says, the point is this. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion since God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. It's almost like he was looking at Malachi 3. But give, but give cheerfully and watch what God will do, that he will give every grace that's necessary, that you will overflow. Same language. Now, the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. What is the harvest that he's increasing? Your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. So your generosity, God's going to reward that with increasing righteousness, and he's going to give you for, you'll be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. Worship. And so this is what you must see. The New Testament paradigm of generosity and giving is you are blessed for giving, not because of giving. Did you catch that, how he said that? You will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. We have to, we have to reorient how we think about this. You are blessed, I am blessed for giving, so we can be generous, not because we are generous. And yet, we will be blessed. There are real rewards for how we steward what God has given us. And so, the, uh, I think it's Randy Alcorn. I don't know that, but it's certainly not me. But I once heard a pastor say, like, the, the posture, the position of a Christian in terms of generosity is like, the faster I can shovel it out, the better. The more I can give away, the better. Because the more will come in. And that does not mean that you're going to have a fat bank account. Like, it's, it's righteousness overflowing. It's what truly matters. And so now we got to move on, but what is the appropriate amount to give then? If you're saying like, I'm not bound to a 10% tithe in the New Testament, it does not command me to do that. That's not part of the moral law, so to speak, that like this is required. Um, then what should I give? 
And this is my primary answer. Based on what I can see in the scriptures, you should see the gospel, you should see the generosity of God, and give in light of that. As you decide in your heart, and as you prosper, give cheerfully. When you see how gracious, how generous God is, you see the gospel that he gave his very self. And then give in light of that. What can you do? But don't allow that to take you to a legalistic thing of like, well, I've got to give this percentage or that percentage. Like, if just in your principles, your practice, your discipline, you're like, I want to increase my percentage every year, that's beautiful. I would encourage you to do that. But don't turn it into a legalistic thing that now you're no longer giving from a cheerful heart. Um, But see how God actually honors that, how he blesses you in that. The pattern of the tithe may actually be a nice starting point. You know, it was actually the pattern established before the law was given. But Abram or Abraham shows up and there's this king of Salem, Melchizedek, very mysterious but incredible character in scripture. And Abraham gives him a tenth. And so this is before the law is given to us. And so if you're just like, I have no idea where to start, 10% may be a good place to start. That may feel really overwhelming to you. But if, if you need to talk to a pastor, like, one, we want you to know, like, we, we do not at all want to guilt you into giving a set amount. But if you want to talk about what it looks like to follow the way of Jesus and learn to be more generous, we would love to walk alongside you with that. So let's come back. So we have seen high level, here's the structure, and then we look in some burning questions, like particularly, what do we do with the law? What do we do with the tithe? Um, and then now let's look at the passage's argument for us today. There's a challenge for us in this, I believe. The book has worked through covenants. So you recall, we gave you the structure at the start of this sermon series at the beginning of the month. Um, There are four covenants that are covered. He starts with the covenant of Jacob, and then he goes to the covenant of Levi, and then the covenant of marriage Chris covered last week. And now we look at the covenant of Moses, the Mosaic covenant, the law, namely. And so as you look through that, and we see now he's talking about the tithe, that's the part of the covenant of the Mosaic law that he brings up. Like of all the laws you could bring up, you bring up the tithe. Like God really wants my money, doesn't he? Why would he do that? Of all the law, why is it the tithe that he comes to and says, return to me. This is what he's wanting. He's wanting you to return. And then you're like, well, how do we return? He's like, tithe. Like, is it really that God just wants my money? No. So let's get a little deeper here. The tithe, the whole idea of the tithe, of a tenth of it, is actually referring to what is prime and polished in your life. It's the best of what you've got. So you have cattle, you have a harvest, and you come to the end of that like, yeah, time to cash out. That's the best one, that one goes to the Lord. Or I get all this, before I spend any of it, I'm giving this to the Lord. The idea of the tithe was not this legalistic thing about like get your percentage right, balance your books. It's about what is first and best. What are you giving God? Does God get leftovers? Like, you know, at the end of the week, I'm just so tired. I guess I could jump in and help put a chair up. I did my duty. Do you like that, God? Thanks. We don't want to be a church where that's our heart. They're like, oh, there's just a need and I'll just jump into that need. I'm gonna speak personally right now. My kids are in those classes. I do not want you to be a teacher just because we desperately need more teachers. I want you to be a teacher helping me, partnering with me and discipling my children because you have a passion for the next generation knowing the Lord. And that applies to everything we do. Every ministry of our church, 
Let's not just fill voids. We have real needs. But I hope that you would step into them, not just like, oh, this is what I can give. No, like, the principle of the tithe, like, what is first and best? And God's saying, return to me. Why am I getting leftovers? You return to what you desire most and what you love most, so return to me. Do you see the way that I love you? Do you see the way that I love you in grace? And I'm promising, like, it'll be a blessing to you. Test me. See what will happen if you come back to me. It'll be so good for you. But you just want to give me the leftovers, the scraps. Saying, reorient your life to see that he deserves everything. This is part of the law. Remember, the point of the law, let's bring it back to that. What is the purpose of the law? The New Testament makes it clear for us. It's to point out like an x-ray machine, something is broken. You can't do it. And so he brings the tithe up saying like, hey, bring your first and your best. But remember the point of the law is your first and best is never gonna be enough. You will never measure up. That sounds so dark and twisted, but it's so true because we have to be honest. We are sinful, broken people, and yet God is gracious. He does not change. He is the Lord. He's compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful covenantal love, forgiving the sins of a thousand generations. And yet he is just. There will be punishment. There will be consequences for those who are against him. And so he's saying, remember who I am. Return to me. You cannot bring even your first and best. It's not enough. Just come to me and remember I'm gracious and watch how I'll bless you. You're mine. So return to me. He doesn't want just a fraction of your heart. And bottom line, he's after it all. And he gave us all. He gave us his very life. He does not want just a fraction of your heart. And we so like to like split things out. You know, there's a time when Jesus is standing there and some people are trying to trip him up and they, they come up to him like, tax season, Jesus, what are you gonna do about this? You gonna pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus is like, anybody got a denarius? This little coin, one of the currency of the day? Oh, yeah, yeah, right here. Magic trick, he's gonna make it disappear. No. <laughs> he takes it and he's like, hey, you guys see this? Whose image and whose inscription is on this? I'm like, Caesar's. I can imagine him kind of like flicking it back. Right. Well, King James verdict, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Or give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. There's an image on the coin of Caesar. Who does it belong to? I guess Caesar. Whose image is on you? God's. You were made in his image. He does not want a fraction of your heart. He does not want just your first and best, what you can polish. It will never be enough. He wants all of you. And he gives you the invitation, would you come back to me? Will you return to me? Come to me. And we have to see what happens when we do that. Uh, verse 12 in chapter three. So test me. Watch how I'll overflow Verse 12, then all the nations will consider you fortunate for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. This is always the case. This is always the paradigm. That your blessing does not terminate on you. You're enriched for generosity's sake. It's kind of cliche now, but it's so true. Like you were blessed to be a blessing. It does not terminate on you. The missional nature of Israel's calling and our own is to all nations. So verse nine, you go back and he's like, hey, can't you already feel the curse? Maybe you feel like that now. Do you ever have an experience or have you lived in a state where, where you're like, I can hear the voice of God saying return to me because I know I'm not where I should be. 
Will you go back to him? And then live from that place so that the world would see, wow, (laughs) you really are amazing. God is amazing. Look at the way that he's blessing this person. And that may not look like a lot of luxury, but great deep joy that circumstances don't shake. Purpose, stability, the beautiful promises of God that he's working all things for our good and his glory. What an amazing thing. But you have to return. You have to come back to him. Last Friday, um, my, my daughter had a, a preschool graduation party thing. And so it's down at Waterfront Park and there's a bunch of parents there and all these kids and there's like, they've like triple booked the splash pad. I was like, oh, come on. <laughs> this is like my worst nightmare. Like there are kids everywhere. I love kids, but I'm not very good at managing kids. Like I, I don't like, what's going on? I don't know who's who. Like there's just stuff happening everywhere. And I'm wearing cheap flippy floppies because I'm a cheap guy. And so I'm walking down by the water through the sand and um, Elena's playing out there and all this stuff. And I turn to go back up. And as I turn around and take a step, my cheap flippy floppy, you know, it came out of the hole. It's useless now. I'm like, no, there's no fixing that. Like, it, I can't just like push it back in. The, the part that grabs the other side broke off. Like, this is literally worthless. And I'm not gonna walk around with broken flippy floppies in my hand with everyone like, oh, that sucks. So what do I do? I throw them away. I throw them away. You know what's happening now? I'm barefoot. And while I'm down by the water, that's fine. Most of us are barefoot. All these kids are barefoot. A lot of you are barefoot. But the further I would get from the water, the more my insecurity comes out. And I could look at them in the eyes and I could tell. They're trying not to look down because they don't want to embarrass me. But I can read it. It's, it's like a billboard. This poor man doesn't have shoes. <laughs> What's wrong with this man? It's the further that I get from the water, the more awkward I feel. They're like, I don't have shoes. I'm like, oh, this is so weird. And so I just want to go back to the water because I feel more at home with the water. And that should be our life experience, right? With God. You feel so out of place. And, and the waves are just rocking you. And you have all this insecurity and all this stuff, and you step on glass, and you do, all this stuff happens the further you get from God, and God's standing there saying, Come back, return to me. Like the prodigal son's father standing at the end of the street, and there's a song that I've just fallen in love with, and, and he's standing there in his finest robe, and he's mouthing, I love you, my boy. Just come back. He says, Return to me. Return to me. And then watch as the world around will see, wow, you are fortunate. This is delightful. And it's this spiritual thing that's not necessarily material terms, but it's real. And then you go to the end of the book as we conclude this. Because we still live in that tension. They're like, it doesn't always feel that way, God. Like, I'm trying so hard. And it doesn't feel like you're blessing me and the world around is like, oh, that's what I want. In fact, sometimes it feels like the rest of the world is pointing and they're laughing. Look at this guy. Look at what he gave up. What you, oh, yep. For look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. You will trample the wicked, for they will be established, or they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day I'm preparing, says the Lord of armies. This is the promise of what is ours and what is to come. 
And so just like there's this danger with the prosperity gospel based on God's call to test him, to see what he'll provide, they're like, oh, if you come into faith and you give God this amount, then you should expect that he's gonna bless you in this way. And you know how many millions of people around the world are just living under that kind of oppression, waiting and wondering what went wrong. I sent that guy on TV what he said and life is still falling apart and I'm still hungry and all this stuff because it is a lie from hell. But in the same way, we can have this over-realized eschatology, this study of the end times, that like the day is promised, it is coming when we will be married to Jesus and right now we're just betrothed to him. It's legally declared, it is done, we are his and yet that has not been consummated and so we live in the tension of the already not yet. That it is decided, it is ours, the promise is ours and yet we have not yet stepped into the full reality of that yet. He's with us in this waiting and yet it is not yet what it will be. And so we feel the tension of that and we have to be okay with that and we have to put our hope in the day that is to come when he's gonna make it all right. We live for that day, not this day. (laughs) And the same way, uh, my daughter, she's graduating VPK and she wakes up graduation morning and it's like six in the morning because she's an early riser and she comes and she's talking to me and she's like, daddy, don't forget to pack my uniform. Her and my wife had gone uniform shopping because she's going to be going to kindergarten. We've been telling her all year, after you graduate, you get to go to kindergarten. And she tells me, the morning of her graduation, don't forget to pack my uniform. And I realize in her mind, she thinks we're graduating and then driving her over to this school to enter kindergarten. <laughs> like, well, sweetheart, you actually get a break. You get summer break. So I'm glad you're excited for kindergarten, but not quite yet. And that is where we are. Graduation has happened. You're a kindergartner. But kindergarten doesn't start for a few more months. You are the Lord's, and he is yours. But we're waiting for a beautiful wedding. So what will you do in the waiting? In the words of my good friend Tim, said, hunger can build either anticipation or frustration. Put your hope in the Lord on that day and let it grow anticipation. I love the language of that. You'll be like a calf released from a stall, jumping. The idea is like an animal caged up. That's a baby. He wants to play. And that moment comes when the shepherd comes and he opens that gate. You're free. And it just jumps. So that's us on that day excited. Here comes real freedom. This is the day. So here's the question we'll conclude with. Are you ready to come home? Have you walked away from the Lord? Do you hear his voice saying, return to me? I don't even need your first and best. I want you to see that I've given you my first and my best. So you can come. Come to me. If you don't believe, now's your chance. Trust in Jesus who lived and died and rose again and look forward to that day who will make everything new. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love and it's so unlike ours that we can be so fickle and yet you are constant. You do not change and so we are not consumed or destroyed. Thank you. You're so gracious and merciful. We praise you and thank you that you stand ready and waiting. So Spirit, would you move and convict hearts? Would you help us to repent of sin that we need to repent of and to come to you in faith? We love you and pray this in Jesus' name.